This podcast is brought to you by WeTransfer, the world's largest file transfer service. Since 2009, WeTransfer's free platform has been enabling creative thinkers around the world. Visit wetransfer.com today and see for yourself. Hi, I'm Jeremy Leslie from Mag Culture. Welcome to What About, the podcast about how initial ideas develop into the fully formed stories we find in magazines. I like to imagine the writer at the editorial meeting leaning forward to convince his colleagues of an idea, saying, What about? Each episode of What About looks at one story from one magazine. We open with me talking to the editor about the origins of the story, and then we get to hear it, read in full. We're focusing on the individual story, that essential building block of magazine making, and the editorial work that goes into creating and finessing it. Jennifer Higgy, Editorial Director of Freeze magazine, joins me for this episode of What About? Launched 26 years ago in London, Freeze was one of the first art magazines to place an importance on its design and appearance. Alongside the increasing popularity of the arts, the magazine has developed a global audience for its coverage of contemporary culture as well as modern art. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you, Jeremy. So uh, Freeze is primarily known for its art coverage. Mm-hmm. Last year it celebrated its 25th anniversary, so... Mm-hmm. It's been around, it sort of grew up as almost part of, but alongside the YBAs, as they were known, the young British artists of the early 90s. Yeah, it did. I mean, a lot of people ask if the title of Freeze, which is obviously I-E-Z, not double E-Z, is named after the Mm -hmm. famous show that was organised by Damien Hirst in 1991, which was also called Freeze. But Matthew and Amanda, who started the magazine, Matthew Slotover and Amanda Sharp, say that that's just a coincidence. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) Uh But, I mean, our tagline is contemporary art and visual culture. And so it's... We do obviously focus on contemporary art, but we also have sections on design and architecture Mm -hmm. and film and books and literature. And so we sort of examine the culture that we're living in at the moment in terms of different forms of creativity. And I guess, I mean, across those 26 years now uh, Mm. of of the magazine's existence, in a way, the art world has become much more sort of melded with all those other worlds Mm. of design and fashion. And they've all become much more sort of crossed over. Well, yes and no, I think. It is interesting how separate they are, even Mm -hmm. though they tend to influence each other. You know, a lot of artists might not know an enormous lot about fashion and Mm -hmm. and vice versa, even though in a funny, maybe almost subliminal level, sometimes I think they influence each other. But from the point of view of the magazine, there's definitely Mm -hmm. an interest in all these different areas, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so having had the big sort of celebration of 25 years Mm -hmm. uh, last year, Perhaps this year might have been a slight kind of hangover feeling, but you had a big relaunch yourselves in terms of a big uh, new look to it, a new design. Yeah, we've got a new designer, the brilliant David Lane, who came in earlier this year, mm-hmm. and he's done a redesign in terms of our fonts and our grids. Yeah, and he's brought a real new freshness yeah. to, to well, the magazine. Looking, you know, yeah. I think magazines need to refresh quite regularly mm. these days. And yeah. It's good to see Freeze kind of taking a step forward like that. Yeah. One of the things that always interests me about that kind of area, in particular how you design an art director magazine about design, when you're discussing the subject of the visual arts, how do you kind of present it and how do the two sit side by side? Do you find sometimes working with a designer in the area of, of the arts that their first choice of an image might be the most visually striking mm. in, in a kind of general sense, but actually when it comes down to it, there's a very particular image that must lead yeah, the piece. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we've worked with quite a lot of 
art directors at Freeze, and they've all been brilliant in their own way, and they all have a very different take on mm-hmm. you know how they select images or what the relationship between text and images is. But yes, of course, and very understandably, they often will go to, for the most striking image as opposed to the image that is the one that's in discussion and that needs to be prominent. But, you know, we're always all happy when there's a perfect marriage of the strongest image and it's the appropriate one for the text. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And as you said earlier, the magazine does have within its remit all of visual mm, culture mm. and even even things like music and all yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but as far as I'm aware, generally the front cover would not usually be a more traditional kind of visual arts rather than uh, Yeah, it's very or, true. Yeah. I mean, I think we had one fashion cover in the 90s, in the early mm-hmm. 90s. And I, since then, the cover of the May issue, May 2017 is an image of the work of Rei Kawakubo. Mm -hmm. But it's not obviously a fashion image Mm -hmm. in that it's a very beautiful image. It's quite mysterious. It's quite enigmatic in a sense in terms of what it's conveying. You know, it's an eye in the dead centre of the cover surrounded by sort of glitter and gloss and what could be a sort of gossamer material. And so it doesn't scream fashion. there's a sense of movement in it. Yeah, there's a sense of movement. There's a sense of enigma. There's a sense of the relationship between a body and some kind of fabric, but it's not really spelled out. And so for this issue where we featured Rei Kawakubo's work, we thought that this was an image that really, in a sense, embodied what her approach Mm -hmm. is, which isn't obviously fashion in terms of how we know it. And that's where her radicalism lies. Yeah. And that cover leads us to the piece that we're going to be hearing shortly about Rei Kawakubo's big exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Mm -hmm. It's a piece that stands out. You mentioned earlier, quite often you have columns about various other areas Mm -hmm. of of, of visual culture, but it's quite rare, I think, for you to have a whole feature dominated Mm -hmm. by such a major figure in another discipline. Tell us how that piece came about. I mean, it's obviously um, came out in the May issue, so it was in advance Mm -hmm. of the actual show opening. Yeah, exactly. Well... Rei Kawakubo is a unique figure in fashion, and she doesn't even call herself a fashion designer. She calls herself a clothes maker, mm-hmm. which is why we titled the piece The Clothes Maker. This is only the second time that the Metropolitan Museum of Art has put on an exhibition devoted to a living designer's work. The first time was in 1983 for Yves Saint Laurent. And that show was absolutely widely criticised, not because of the clothes, which were wonderful, of course, because they're Yves Saint Laurent, but because it was perceived that clothes shouldn't be seen in a museum of art. So there were lots of issues around why we decided to run a major feature on this, is that Rei Kawakubo has always created clothes that are extremely sculptural. They're not particularly functional. I mean, in her latest designs, she doesn't even have armholes, for example. So she's creating these garments that work with the body, work against the body. They reference sculpture as much as they reference other fashion She's one of the most wildly inventive makers on earth, you know, be it fashion or art or anything else. So she's always been an absolute figure of fascination for us. And Judith Clark is the perfect person to write about her in a way because Judith is a fashion historian and a professor of costume. And Judith understands art as much as she understands mm-hmm. fashion. And so she was looking at the intersections between the two mm-hmm. disciplines. And it's interesting because the piece opens with that discussion about whether or not mm. clothes have their place in a museum and it closes with that and that is the kind of arc of the piece. In a sense it mirrors the the presence of the piece within Freeze as well because mm. obviously you're making a certain statement by th- devoting so much space to, to the subject. Did anybody respond 
negatively to the fact that no, you were doing that? No, no. I mean... I, mean, I don't I, think they should, but... I'm no, I know, I know what you mean. Um, well, no one did to our face anyway, mm. no, not that I've heard of. I mean, from my perspective, we had a really overwhelmingly positive response to it, you know, because I think there's so much fascination mm-hmm. around her work and she is so utterly brilliant. She's had a long history of working closely with artists, with visual artists Mm -hmm. as well, you know, creating exhibitions, working collaboratively. She often gets artists to create installations in Dover Street Market, you know, the shop that is Mm -hmm. around the world now that she and her husband conceived of and run, which supports a lot of other makers and designers as well. She's so innovative that it seemed it would have almost seemed strange for us not to do something uh-huh. on her, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And having decided to do it, you did it ahead of the actual opening uh, yeah. of the exhibition. Yeah. Um, I mean, the timing was, we discussed this a lot. We could have done it after the show opened, but, you know, with lead times on magazines, the show opened in May, which would have meant that we wouldn't have been able to get something in print probably by September, you know, which by that stage there would have been hundreds of articles written around her already, so it didn't seem to be the point really. And this wasn't so much, obviously it's not a preview because it was, the whole show was veiled in secrecy. We had no access to Mm -hmm. that. But we had very good access to her archive and her people were extremely communicative and helpful. And so we felt that it was more timely in a way, not to try and do something on the show itself, but more look at the precedence Mm -hmm. of the show, look at what the role of fashion in art museums is, look at why she's considered important, not only in fashion but in sculptural terms. And so we thought that these were really interesting ideas that we could explore in the magazine and and Judith was a really perfect person for that. Given that this is a a podcast about magazines and publishing, it would be wrong of me not to pick up on the fact that the subject here produced her own magazine and that was called Six. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, um, Six was published by Comme des Garçons, which, of course, is Ray Kawakubo's company, and it was published between 1988 until 1991. There were only eight issues produced for it, and its title is quite enigmatic, but it's possibly alluding to our sixth sense, or, you know, who knows, it's fairly up Mm -hmm. in the air. Um, But it was a very beautiful magazine, unsurprisingly, and very mysterious in a way because it ranged from looking at different photographs to choreographers to looking at, say, precedents like suprematist filmmaking from the 1920s or to fashion photographers, really interesting fashion photographers now like Jürgen Teller, or it might have been looking at Jean Cocteau's, you know, murals. So it didn't seem to have, as far as I could tell, a really crystal clear editorial policy apart from the fact that it liked running things mm-hmm. on stuff that inspired so the company. It, 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 yeah. Yeah, it was uh, yeah. her inspiration. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And if you look at the covers, you know, they're very minimal. There's, you know, like, mm-hmm. it'll just say six with quite an enigmatic image. It could be a part of a flower or a face of an old woman smoking or... Uh, and as I recall, there was no explanation. There was no, no real kind of definition no, with absolutely it. It's just not. the subject. And which is, um, yeah, which is how Ray Kawakubo um, mm-hmm. likes to present her work as well. I mean, it, we originally did think of doing an interview with her, but she's sort of brilliantly minimalist in interviews. You know, yeah. I've read there's one famous interview that she did with um, Hans Ulrich Obrist, and, you know, and he'd, he would ask her a long question around influences and she would reply, I have no influences. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. so... Um, not not very revealing. Yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> in a funny way, very revealing. Oh, very, yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> Brilliant, OK. One of the subjects the piece does begin to pick up on in terms of the, the history of, of the Met regarding fashion as worthy of its of, mm. of an exhibition is how Freeze sees that, whether you're, you and the magazine 
has a point of view in terms of the consumerist side of fashion as opposed to the creative mm. side of fashion and whether in a situation like this you veer into kind of sort of almost selling product rather than discussing creativity and visual culture. You could say everything we publish is about selling products. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a very robust art market out there, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. which gives the fashion market a run for its money. So as long as the designer is doing something interesting and we're responding in a way that is critical mm -hmm. and imaginative, then I don't see a problem with that. And there's a relevance to the work in yeah, hand. Of yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks very much for coming in, Jennifer, and, and, and talking to me. us. And let's go over and listen now to the piece. The Clothesmaker by Judith Clark. When Diana Vreeland placed more than 200 of Yves Saint Laurent's designs in the Costume Institute of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 1983, no one criticised the clothes. They were beyond reproach. Writing in the catalogue's introduction, Vreeland, the former editor of US Vogue and special consultant to the Costume Institute, declared, This is the first exhibition the Costume Institute of the Metropolitan Museum of Art has dedicated to the work of one living designer. Why Yves Saint Laurent? Because he's a genius. Because he knows everything about women. Vreeland had already altered the conventions of the Institute by bringing in commercial shop mannequins for previous exhibitions, abstracting their heads and often anachronistically exaggerating their styling. For the Yves Saint Laurent exhibition, she highlighted the designer's artistic breadth with selections from his iconic collections, such as Mondrian, 1965, his essential tuxedo suit for women, Le Smoking, 1966, and ensembles inspired by his travels in Morocco. Yet despite the seminal costumes it included, Yves Saint Laurent remains a show that is now perhaps best known for the criticisms that were levelled against it, most vehemently from art critics. It was not that the clothes were wrong, it was that they were in the wrong place. Many felt that an established hierarchy had been ruptured. Saint Laurent's commercial success and the far-reaching appeal of his designs were perceived as problematic when placed within an art museum. It was a question of environment, of objects out of order. All communication around the forthcoming exhibition Ray Kuakubo comme des garçons, Art of the In-Between, has cited Kuakubo as only the second living designer to show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, despite the previous inclusion of contemporary fashion in many of their exhibits. There is no doubt in Kuakubo's status, but it is as though the matter of fashion's legitimacy within the art museum needs to be settled once and for all, and she's going to be the one to do it. Kuakubo describes herself as a clothesmaker. She did not train as a designer, but studied both Eastern and Western aesthetics at Keio University in Tokyo, where she founded Comme de Garçons in 1969. In 1979, in what she described as a key rupture, she rejected the idea of fashion existing in continuity with an essentially, for her, Japanese folkloric tradition. Instead, she began to design clothes that started from zero. In 1981, for one of the most cited shows in recent dress history, Lace, which included boiled wool knitwear so full of holes it resembled lace, she moved to Paris in the company of Yoji Yamamoto and Izzy Miyaki, where she's presented her collections ever since. This and her subsequent designs were typified not by the idea of an evolving style that abided by contemporary ideals of beauty and shifting erogenous zones, 
but by the insistent question posed every season around how to be a woman or a person in the world. Kuwakubo seeks a kind of beauty that is free from cliched ideas of sexuality. This often generates a nervous derision in critics, such as that surrounding her spring 1997 collection, Body Meets Dress, Dress Meets Body, in which the wearer's curves were repositioned. The press instantly renamed it The Lumps and Bumps Collection, or Quasimodo. Yet it remains one of the most collected and exhibited in Kuwakubo's archive and was included in the Metropolitan Museum of Art's Extreme Beauty Exhibition in 2002, where it was juxtaposed with a pair of 18th-century hip pads. By 1987, creations by The Clothesmaker were being shown alongside the work of two other pioneers of dress at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York, Madeleine Vionnet and Claire McArdle. Three women... Curated by Richard Martin and Harold Coder, acknowledged Kuwakubo's conceptual enterprise in the 1980s as akin to that of Vionnet in the 1920s and 30s and Mercado in the 1940s and 50s. Clothing that reimagined what or how women might be. Instead of employing predictable, cropped, decorative detailing, the catalogue acknowledged its innovation with the following statement typed onto its grey cover. Three women, Madeleine Vionnet, Claire McArdle, and Ray Kuakubo is an examination of construction and style in three great designers of the 20th century. Each designer in a separate era of the century provided a new concept and vision of dress. They reformulate and reform dress. All three offer clothing design as a conceptual and radical enterprise. They posit ideas as they work with material. They realise a definition of women as they create the garment. In the instances of Vionnet, Mercado and Kuakubu, these women make clothes that make women. These three women make clothes that foster a new intelligence and new directions in apparel. Their analytical considerations of construction, of the body and of the social role of women were and are brave and abiding ideas about fashion. The one attribute that the three women share is a vision of dress that implicates the wearer. As the dress historian Caroline Evans noted at the time, Kuwakubo's clothes are constructed in anticipation of movement. The body's movement releases the potential of the garment. As the wearer moves, unexpected features of cut are revealed in odd places. In this sense, the wearer is also the maker of the garment. Kuwakubo's exploration of the principles of dress and the body in space and a questioning of what constitutes inside and outside is an endless renegotiation of seemingly inconceivable equations. In recent years, her approach has undergone a fundamental shift. For her spring-summer 2014 collection, the wearability of the garments was no longer the point. In her most recent collection, for example, armholes were omitted and hairlines repositioned. Newness is the quality that defines Kuakubo. In the Met's press release, she explains that the modes of expression that are most important to her are fusion, imbalance, unfinished, elimination and absence of intent. She plays with ideas of completion and incompletion, treating the body itself as something unfinished. She makes demands on critics to come up with descriptions that avoid the kind of reductive decoding that Susan Sontag, 
warned about in her essay Against Interpretation, 1966, in which she suggested that in a place of a hermeneutics, we need an erotics of art. Kuakuba was a key participant in the first Biennale of Fashion, Il Tempo e la Moda, Time and Fashion, which was held in Florence in 1996 and curated by Germano Salant, Luigi Settembrini and Ingrid Sishi. She was paired with the artist Oliver Herring in Arata Isasaki's pavilion at the Forte del Belvedere. The project sought to forge new connections between the worlds of contemporary art and fashion. Celant wrote in the catalogue, To cut is to think. The press release stated, The fundamental aim of the project is to document and study all aspects of international fashion, the influences upon it, and its influence on other cultural forms, art, design, photography, cinema, theatre, music, literature, sport, communications, costume and daily aesthetics, excluding its direct link with industry or commerce. So somewhat bizarrely, commerce was to be ignored, despite the fact that many of the installations comprised collections that were designed to be reproduced and sold. From the beginning, Kuakubu has imagined her collections in retail spaces that resemble galleries, and her choice of locations, such as the shop she opened in New York on Worcester Street in 1983 and Chelsea in 1999, reflects this desire. The architect Takawa Kawasaki designed most of the early Comme des Garçons boutiques. Often located off the beaten track and with little, if any, merchandise on view, to see the clothes you need to know where you're going, which both confuses and fetishizes this idea of looking and buying which both confuses and fetishizes the idea of looking and buying. Whilst the collection start as presentations on the catwalk, seen by only select guests, they are powerfully extended in the retail environments that Kuakubu, along with her husband and Comme de Garçon CEO, Adrian Joff, has created in what long-term collaborator, the milliner Stephen Jones, calls their home around the world, Dover Street Market, which has outlets in Beijing, Jinza, London, New York and Singapore. These shops feel as though they were designed to frame the way space works in Kuakubu's designs. She insists that nothing is drilled into the fabric of the site's original structure, which evokes a general sense of impermanence. Regenerating buildings and creating a venue for her protégés to show their work, these shops have facilitated commissions and an astonishing list of collaborations. From Chanel, Hermès and Louis Vuitton, to artists including the Chapman brothers, Gilbert and George, and Cindy Sherman, as well as new opportunities for partnerships with Julian Dies and Stephen Jones. Eloquent displays in the shops take delight in reclassifying objects. For example, reconditioned wooden display cabinets from London's Victorian Albert Museum might be stuffed with metal hanging rails, while Dies's ephemeral wigs from the catwalk have been displayed as precious artefacts. Elsewhere, you can pull a curtain around a whole rail of vetements clothing for private consumption and the eight issues of the magazine published by Comme de Garçons from 1988 until 1991. Six, a reference to our sixth sense, perhaps, constitute a library. Fashion historian Evans remembers receiving issues of it. 
Six was largely, but not exclusively, black and white, with an emphasis on photography. In any issue, you might chance upon photographs by Robert Frank, André Curtez, or Edward Weston, juxtaposed with Eileen Gray's technical drawings for her S-Bend chair, Edziga Vertov's cinematic manifesto, an interview with Yoji Yamamoto, or a feature on Jean Cocteau. In this panoply of interesting images and words, you might miss the fact that Six also featured that season's com collections, but never the brilliant fashion photography of Timothy Greenfield Saunders, Peter Lindbergh or Jürgen Teller. In other words, Six was a reflection of the ways in which the historical relays within Comme de Garçons projects are embedded carefully within a huge commercial machine. It's not surprising that Kuakubu, in order to best communicate her ideas, has taken on the role of exhibition designer at the Met and has left the selection of garments to the head curator of the Costume Institute, Andrew Bolton. For her 2001 exhibition at the Victorian Albert Museum, Radical Fashion, the curator Claire Wilcox presciently gave 11 designers each a space within which to exhibit their collections. The same year, for the exhibition Two Women, in Antwerp, part of the citywide Mode 2001 landed Gelan project, the curators and designers Walter van Bierendonck and Dirk van Zene, both members of the Antwerp Six who repeatedly acknowledged their conceptual depth to Kuakubu, took this a step further in an exhibition that paired her with Coco Chanel. Whilst Chanel's designs were displayed in an absorbing static exhibition at the request of Kuakubu, the Comme de Gasson Autumn Winter 2001-2002 collection was staged and filmed successively in five institutions, all of which organised people and animals according to different taxonomies. The Royal Athenaeum, the Royal Museum of Fine Art, the Church of St Augustine, the Commodity Exchange and the Winter Garden at Antwerp Zoo. Whilst the first show was a restaging of the original autumn-winter 2001-2002 Paris show, Beyond Taboo, the presentations that followed were styled by Van Bierendock in close collaboration with Kuakubu. Videos of each were screened in the entrance hall of the exhibition dedicated to Chanel, creating an evolving perspective on the relationship between the two designers' work. The tradition of imagining alternative settings of Kuakubu's collection was continued by Olivier Cellar, director of the Palais Galliera, Musée de la Mode, Paris, in the exhibition White Drama, for which he suggested she restage her eponymous Spring-Summer 2012 collection at the Paris Docks. At the press conference held in Paris earlier this year to announce the Met's Art of the In-Between, the audience was promised an exhibition like no other. We were told that Kuakubu's exhibition design will comprise geometric shapes and include a maze. The spatial equivalent of a conundrum, perhaps. You don't know where you are, but you do know someone is in charge and that there is a way out. Kuakubu's approach reveals that display within fashion exhibitions matters in a way that was, for many years, dismissed as a spectacle and that obscurity is best shown and not explained. If the decision to stage Yves Saint Laurent presented a shift in the Met's policy, Bolton's Savage Beauty in 2011, which was dedicated to Alexander McQueen, created another. It set a new standard in the display of dress. Bolton is uniquely qualified to make the museum's commercial needs compatible with aesthetic innovation. 
For the catalogue, a transcribed conversation between the two authors of the exhibition, Bolton and Kuakubu, will reveal his role, just as hers as a double agent. Both on the side of the desire not to conform to prescribed categories, but also on the side of the visitor who might not be so familiar with the complexities of fashion. Saint Laurent was culturally legitimated within his show at the Met by a theme that placed him within a longer history of dress. With Kuakubu, I suspect that the opposite will happen. Unlike the French designer, she will be free to make her own way. The fragility of cultural classification that was such a problem for Saint Laurent's show is, this time, perhaps the point. At MagCulture, we love magazines. To hear more about what we do, visit our website, magculture.com. This podcast is presented by WeTransfer Studios and MagCulture. Visit wetransfer.com slash thisworks to see more of our creative collaborations.